by a donkey for coming. You are welcome. Okay, what I'm going to do this morning is lay a foundation that I'm going to continue tonight. So this is part one, and tonight will be part two. They go together. This is all groundwork. And I want to say this to you, that those of you who take notes, you're going to have real trouble keeping up with me, because I'm going to throw so much at you, and you're probably going to give up 15 minutes into it and say, forget about it. Most Christians, and this is across the board, this is not just the United States, but it is true for the United States, but everywhere I've been, most Christians who gather outside the institutional church don't make it. What do I mean by that? They end up crashing and burning, or disintegrating. And the reason for that, well there are multiple reasons for that. One is, um, when you really get to know people, you find out just how crazy they all are. And you find out how many problems they all really have. And you find out how messed up they are. Of course, there's nothing wrong with you. It's all them. And so, groups just split. The other reason, though, is because there is not a common vision that holds them together. People are together for all different reasons. And usually the reasons why they're meeting together are self-centered. What am I getting out of this? And the thought never occurs to most of them that maybe there's something in this for God. Maybe God is wanting something out of this. Ish, Shaw, or Shaw Mount, or Shaw Brule. There is something in this way of gathering, and, and by way of gathering, I mean gathering the way God intended, organic church life, authentic community. There's something in this that's for God. There's something He's wanting. And so what I'm going to try to do here is unfold for you a story. And remember, Proverbs says, without a vision, the people disintegrate. My reason for doing this is to cast vision. And my hope is that this vision will be so powerful, it will be so glorious, it will be so awesome, that two things will happen. One, when you open the Bible from now on, this is going to be after tonight, because you're only getting part one this morning, but after tonight, when you open the Bible, you're going to look at it like you never have before. And you're going to understand that there's a grand story that all of Scripture is telling in different ways. The other thing is, you will understand the vision for gathering together. And if you go this way, if you take this journey to meet together as a church, outside of institutional structures, under the headship of Jesus Christ, when it gets tough, you'll remember the vision. Why am I doing this in the first place? And it will hold you together. The Bible is a narrative about one thing. One thing alone. And that one thing is what Paul calls the eternal purpose. God has a purpose in his heart. He's had it from before creation. He has many, many purposes in time, but he only has one purpose that's eternal, that never changes. And it's the reason why he created. If you put it another way, the Bible is an unfolding of God's story. And I'm going to try to give you a glimpse of that story this morning and tonight. But here is what happens. God has a story and he's invited all of us into his story. But what most Christians have done is they have invited God into their story. You understand? The Lord is not interested in being part of your story. He has a story. It's eternal. And He's inviting you and me into His story. And we only find the real meaning of life 
when we get into his story. We only find that which our, our hearts long for as Christians. The deepest instincts that we have as believers. They are fulfilled only when we put ourselves into his story. So I'm going to try to uh, unfold to you a little bit about what that story is. But let me just say this before I do that. The way that God communicates his story is that he repeats it over and over again through different vantage points. But he's telling the same story. But he's doing it in different ways, through a different lens. Now, how many of you in this room have seen a movie called Vantage Point with Dennis Quaid in it? Can, can you raise your hand if you watch that? Not enough of you <laughs> to know. So, let me describe it to you. I would recommend it if you haven't seen it. There's an assassination attempt on the president in a forum, a very large forum in another country. I don't remember the country. The whole movie looks at that assassination attempt through eight different vantage points. So this is how it starts. You see the clock. It's 12 o'clock a.m. And now you're going to watch the whole assassination attempt through the eyes of the police officer who dresses in plain clothes who's on, on the ground in that forum. And for 15 minutes you're watching it from his viewpoint. Then the clock stops. And it rewinds real fast. And then it shows you the same event from the tourist who's taking pictures. 12 a.m. And it shows you what it looks like from his perspective. Then it stops. And then it takes uh, a Secret Service agent. 12 a.m. The clock goes. And it shows everything from his perspective. And after you see the eight different vantage points, you got the whole story and the whole plot. And it all comes together. And you're like, wow. That's awesome. But the only way you could have seen the whole story unfold is by putting together the different vantage points. But it's the same story being told again. Do you understand? Okay, well that's what the Bible does. Let's begin, shall we? The story begins before creation. It begins before time. And according to John 17, Jesus Christ gives us a peek into what's going on before creation. And one of the things that's going on is there is a passionate, unconditional love that's happening between Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's an incredible exchange of love between the three persons of the triune God. But the other thing is, there is a mutual indwelling of those three persons. The Father dwells in the Son. The Son dwells in the Father. The Spirit dwells in both. There's a mutual indwelling. God the Father finds His home in the Son. The Son finds His home in the Father. The Spirit finds His home in both. And here is the amazing, mind-blowing purpose of God. That the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, before time, counseled together and they conceived a purpose. An eternal purpose. And that purpose was this. Because of their overflowing love for one another, it was instinctive to their nature that that love spill out to another creature. And they wanted to expand the indwelling. They wanted to expand the indwelling. Now the Father found a home in the Son, and the Son found a home in the Father, and the Spirit found a home in both. But the Father, Son, and Spirit, as the triune God, together, those three, as one, the Godhead was homeless. The persons of the Trinity had a home in one another, but all three were homeless together. And I am using biblical language. You'll see this. God was without a home, and He wanted a home. He wanted to expand the mutual indwelling. He wanted to expand the exchange of love that went on between Father, Son, and Spirit. Listen to John 14.23. Jesus says, If any man loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him. And listen to this. And we, we, Father and Son, 
will come into Him and make our home in Him. Right from the lips of our Lord. God wants a home. God wants a house. God wants a building in which to dwell. He's a builder. And he has purposed to build himself a home because that's what he wants for himself. Now, I don't know if you've ever been homeless or near homeless, but it's a terrible feeling. And there's something in your God that can relate to that. He's looking for a place to dwell. Father, Son, and Spirit together. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the blueprint for the house of God. So I want you to turn to Genesis 1, and this is where we're going to start. And we're going to go through this slowly, and we're going to build and build and build. And by tonight, I believe you will be very clear on what the house of God is and how it relates to you and me. Genesis 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now the word hovering also means brooding. And the language here conveys that the Spirit of God was looking on this empty earth for a resting place. Just picture this. It's the idea of the Spirit of God as a dove looking on the earth. He's hovering, he's brooding, and he's looking for a place to dwell. A place to commit his presence. And then when you get to Genesis 1, verse 26, we're going to read this very carefully. God has just created man on the sixth day. And he says in verse 26... Let us make man in our image. And I would like you to circle the word image. And if you don't like circling in your Bible, then just make note of it. According to our likeness. And let them, circle the word them, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the cattle and every creeping thing. Verse uh, 28. And God blessed them. Circle the word blessed. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Circle the words fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and the cattle and the creeping things. Circle the word rule. Now go over to Genesis chapter 2 verse 8. And I'm not going to be reading a whole lot of scripture. I'll be referring to it, but... This is one time where we're going to look at it carefully and then we're going to just launch off from here. Genesis 2 verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. We'll circle the word planted. Circle the word garden. And definitely circle the word east. In Eden, he planted a garden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight. Circle the words pleasing to the sight. Or whatever your translation says for that. Pleasing to the sight. And good for food. The tree of life. Circle the word tree of life. Also in the midst of the garden, the center of the garden, was the tree of life. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Circle the word river. It flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. Verse 11. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Circle the word gold. The gold of that land is good. The bedellium. Circle the word bedellium. Now, some translations have the word pearl. Anybody in the room have a translation where it says pearl in verse 12? Yes, beautiful. Good. Aromatic. Aromatic resin, yes. Yes, it'll be either bedellium, aromatic resin, or pearl. Circle that. And the onyx stone. Circle onyx stone. Verse 15. 
Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Circle the word cultivate, or whatever your translation may say, and circle the word keep. Very important, these two passages I've read. Genesis 1, 26 and on. And Genesis 2, verse 8 and on. Now, I'm going to use a term here that I will say over and over again. The Adamic Commission. Adamic meaning referring to Adam. When God said, bear my image, rule over the earth and multiply, that is what I'm referring to as the Adamic Commission. We have image, rule, and multiply. Now let's break down some of this. The word image. Let us make man in our image. God wants to be manifested visibly. Okay? He's invisible, but he wants to be made visible. He wants to be expressed. Then you have the word them that we circle, and that highlights the fact that it's a corporate or collective image that God is wanting. Let us create them. God wants a collective corporate image. And then we have the word fruitful and multiply, and this shows us that God's image is to fill the earth, is to grow and multiply and pervade the planet. And then we have the word rule, which talks about exercising authority. God wants this man, these human beings, man and woman, to exercise his authority. And then he says they will rule over all creation, but they'll also rule over the creeping things. Now what is one of the things that creeps on the earth. The serpent and scorpions. And so when you think of creeping things, think of that which is negative, evil, even demonic. Man is to rule over the creeping things. And then the word Eden, Eden, Garden of Eden, means delight and abundance. And of course, a garden is where life grows. Now, what's in the garden? All types of beautiful trees, right? It says they are pleasing to the sight. This speaks of the beauty of the garden. In some way, the garden was astounding in its beauty. The tree of life is in the center of the garden, right in the midst. And then there's a flowing river that flows out of the garden, waters it, and it breaks up into four river heads. And four is very significant. It's, it's the number of the earth. The scripture uses the term, the four corners of the earth. The four directions. So you have this river that's flowing out of the garden and breaks up into four river heads. The idea being, the purpose of that river is to flow to all the earth. It's a flowing river. And it's to bless the whole earth. Now you have three elements. Gold, something called bdellium, and onyx stone. We all know what gold is. We don't want to talk about that. Bdellium is its one of two things. It's either pearl or it's this white resin that trees produce and it forms into a very hard substance like a pearl. I prefer to use pearl. It's either pearl or a pearl-like substance, which comes from a tree. And then there is onyx stone, and onyx stone is a precious stone. It's a costly stone. So we have gold, pearl, and precious stones. And then in Genesis 2.15, the Lord says to Adam, cultivate the garden and keep it. Now, in the New International Version, y'all have New International Versions in this country? Okay. It's known as the not-inspired version. <laughs> People who don't like it call it that. Um, the non-inspired version. Anyway, um, the NIV translates these words, cultivate, work the garden, and keep the garden, take care of it. And the word in Hebrew for cultivate, listen now, cultivate is abod. It means to serve. Abod, cultivate, serve. And the word for keep in the Hebrew is shamar, and it means to guard or to keep charge of. This is very important, as we'll see in a little bit. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. The Garden of Eden is two things. 
the blueprint of God's house. The blueprint of God's dwelling place, but it's something else. It's the lumber yard where the materials for God's dwelling place reside. It's... Do you have Home Depot here? Or Lowe's? Do you have like a, a, a big department store that you go for building materials? What's it called? Builder's Warehouse. The Garden of Eden is the Builder's Warehouse for God. The materials for the building of His house. His dwelling place. Now gold all throughout Scripture speaks about the incorruptible nature of God the Father. It's incorruptible. And all throughout the Bible, pearl I know they're looking for me, but hopefully they can't find me here. Pearl, all throughout the Bible, speaks about the beauty of God the Son. I don't have time to, to get into all this, just uh, you can you can get a book entitled From Eternity to Here and it goes into some of this. And then precious stone all throughout scripture speaks of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Gold, pearl, and precious stone. And what's amazing is in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, we just read the first two chapters, we have the same materials listed and they reappear. We see a building coming out of the heavens to the earth and it's made of gold, pearl, and precious stone. The building materials have been put together. And it's the dwelling of God. It's His house. And guess what? The tree of life reappears in this building. And guess what? The flowing river reappears in this building. And it's beautiful. Because it's made of gold, pearl, and precious stone. And God, the living God, gets His house. It's the finished product. So really, the story of the Bible is this. That in the beginning, God has a purpose. He wants a house for Himself. And so He creates a garden as a picture of what that house is to be built with. And he puts man and woman in front of a tree in the garden. And the implication is, eat from the tree of life, not the other one. You know, he did say to them, watch your diet. Don't eat from this tree. <laughs> you can eat from any tree. Puts them in front of the tree of life. Eat from this tree. Drink from this flowing river. And what will happen... His gold, pearl, and precious stone will be deposited into you. Not just you as an individual, but to a them. And in this way, you will bear my image, exercise my authority, and multiply. And in the very end, that's what we have. Because that building, brothers and sisters, is living. It's called the wife of the Lamb. And Jesus Christ is not going to marry a physical building. It's alive. In fact, the foundation stones of that building and their precious stones are the twelve apostles. People. Okay, now, here are some overlooked features of the garden that play very prominently in this story. God's presence is found in the garden. He walks in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve have complete fellowship with Him. But not only does God walk in the garden, as we said, there's a tree of life there. That's not just some ordinary tree. That tree is beating and pulsating with life. But it's not human life. It's not even angel life. It's divine life. There's something supernatural going on in this physical garden. God is walking there. The implication too is that they can see Him and hear Him. In some way. Maybe they couldn't physically see Him, but in some way though, they can hear Him. And He walks in the garden. And Adam and Eve have 
unfettered fellowship with Him. And then there's this tree. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. The Garden of Eden, this is so important, is the intersection between the heavenlies and the earthlies. It is an overlap of the invisible heavenly realm, right? And the earthly, invisible realm. God walks in the garden. The tree of life, which comes from a different realm, the heavenly realm, is there. It is a joining together of man's space and God's space. It's an intersection of heaven and earth. It's an overlap between two realms. It is the playground of God and angels. The Garden of Eden. And what is God's intention? That that garden spread throughout the whole earth. He's building a home in the garden that will... is supposed to bear seed and grow. And He will have His dwelling in that garden. And the dwelling will be a mixing together, a joining together of humanity and divinity. God wants to dwell in a material realm, even though He's immaterial. And here is something that I find fascinating. The ancient Hebrews, and later the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, regarded the Garden of Eden as God's first temple. Isaiah calls it the Garden of the Lord. The ancient Jews saw it as the first temple. Now, let me just say a few words about the temple. The temple of Israel had three compartments. There was the outer court, very big. Then they had something called the holy place, which was smaller. And then they had a really tiny part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. The most holy place is where God dwelt. Well, the ancient Hebrews, you can find this in their writings, believed that there were three parts of the garden and they corresponded to the three parts of the temple. They believed that the very center of the garden where the tree of life was corresponded to the Holy of Holies where God would dwell on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And then they believed that the surrounding part of the garden, everything outside the center, corresponds to the holy place, which was a little bit bigger than the most holy place. And then they believed that everything that was part of the land of Eden, because you know you had the land of Eden and the garden was in the land of Eden, but everything that was part of the land of Eden corresponded to the outer court. So they saw the garden as the first temple. And it's interesting when you follow this through, the garden was located on a mountain. The water, the flowing river flowed downstream, flowed down to the four corners of the earth. And at Ezekiel 28, the garden is referred to as being on the mountain of God. So the garden is on a mountain. Well, the temple of Israel was built on a mountain. And then the garden faces east. And the temple of Israel faced east. And the entrance of the garden is on the east. And the entrance of the temple of Israel is on the east. And remember we read that the trees of the garden were said to be pleasing to the eye. This indicates beauty. Well, the temple of the Lord is always associated with beauty. Psalm 27.4 That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Second Chronicles 3.6 says the temple was overlaid with gold and precious stones for beauty. Psalm 96.6 says majesty and splendor are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary, are in His temple. The temple was built with gold, silver, and precious stone. In the garden we have gold, pearl, and precious stone. Silver replaces pearl. There's a reason for that, which we will see later. But gold is there and so is precious stone. In Genesis 3.8, we learn that God's presence walked in the garden in the cool of the day. The Hebrew word for walked 
is holak. God walked, he holaked in the garden. This is the same Hebrew word, holak, that's used for God walking in the midst of the temple. You can find it in Deuteronomy 23 and 2 Samuel 7. Now the temple of Israel always had a king and a priest attached to it. There was always a king who supervised the building of the temple as well as the temple. And there was always priests who served the temple, right? Adam ruled the creation. He subdued the creation. Therefore he was a king in the garden. And Adam was also a priest. Why was he a priest? Well, first of all, he fellowshiped and communed with God. Priests are noted for fellowshipping with God. The people couldn't, but the priests could. But that's not all. In Genesis 2, verse 15, and I read this to you. It said, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, work it, shamar, cultivate it, and take care of it, abod. Which means to guard it or keep charge of it. Well, in Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, listen to this. Just listen to it. The priests are to perform their duties for God and for the whole community at the tabernacle by doing the work abroad of the tabernacle. They are to take care of Shamar, all of its furnishings. It's the same two words. What God said for Adam to do in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. He used the same Hebrew words when he said to the priests, you are to take care of the temple and you are to guard or keep charge of the temple. What's the message here? The garden became the temple. And God wants a king and priest. Or to be plural, kings and priests working with this building. Adam is covered with God's glory. When he was created, before he fell, he was covered with God's glory. Psalms 8 says, God crowned and clothed man with glory and honor. He had the glory of God on him. And Romans 3 says, what happens when you sin? Man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when man fell, the glory left. Well, you remember the high priest over the temple who served the temple the scripture says over and over again he will wear garments for beauty and glory the garments of of the high priest who was over the temple replicated the glory that was on Adam and not only that but the high priest wore a crown of gold on his head over his brow Why did he do that? It signified the removal of the curse from Adam's brow. Do you remember in Genesis 3.19, God said to Adam after he fell, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. And now the high priest wears over his brow gold, which speaks of God's nature. And not only that, but the priests only wore linen garments. They could not wear wool. Why? Because what happens when you wear wool? You sweat. And what was part of the curse? By the sweat of your brow, you will labor. Now the priests wear linen. They don't sweat. Now I want you to know something. There's an an alternative story going on with this story I'm beginning to tell you. And the alternative story is that God's enemy did not want God to have his house. And as you see, and we're going to watch this develop, as God is building His house, as God is trying to get His dwelling place, His enemy is building counterfeit cities. And all throughout Scripture you have this tension of God building His house, He's trying to get His house so He can dwell, and the enemy is building through fallen humans, putting their hand on the plow to build counterfeit cities. And all throughout Scripture, there's six counterfeit cities. And I don't have time to explain them all to you. I'll probably go over them real quickly uh, tonight. 
But there's tension here. And we know tragedy struck. The enemy got to Adam and Eve. Because the enemy knew what God was up to. He didn't want God to have his house. So Adam and Eve are banished out of the garden. And he puts cherubim. Cherubim are plural. Cherub is singular. (laughs) And according to Hebrew tradition, there are two of them. Two cherub. The cherubim. He puts the cherubim in front of the garden to guard it. Now what are cherubim? They're angelic beings of some sort. And there's two of them. Now listen to this. In the temple, when the temple was built, and we will get there, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, guarding it, just like they guarded the garden, guarding the Ark of the Covenant where God dwelt, are two cherub. Two cherub. The cherubim. Now don't think that's a coincidence. They're guarding the garden. They're guarding the most holy place in the temple. And embroidered in the curtains of the temple are cherubim. And carved into the walls of Solomon's temple are cherubim. They're guarding God's house. It's a good play to say, ish. And listen to this. After Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, something happens. There begins to develop in the Bible a land versus wilderness tension. A theme. The garden was in the land of Eden. Well, now they're cast out. And guess what? Now something happens. The wilderness enters into the scene. And there's this tension between the land and the wilderness all throughout Scripture. And the message here is that when man is banished from the garden, the place where God would like to dwell, the earth starts to become a wilderness where no life grows. But God doesn't give up on His house. He still wants to build a home for Himself. Listen to Isaiah 51.3. The prophet says, For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden. And her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving in the voice of melody. So God promises to restore the garden. And so now the enemy is provoking human beings to build these counterfeit cities. And God gets to the point where He has to destroy the whole creation. This is the flood now. And now a new creation emerges. And uh, the terms old creation and new creation should be familiar to you, but that's what it was. He destroyed the first creation, and that was the old creation. He begins a new creation with Noah. And if you remember, Noah knew when it was time to get out of the boat because he sends the dove out. And the dove begins to hover over the waters looking for life. And remember when it found the olive branch? It was time for the people to get out of the boat and step into a new creation. Are you following this? The dove appears again. Hello? He's hovering over the waters. He's looking for a place to dwell. And he doesn't come back. It's a picture. It's a message. Now, there's a lot about Noah that I can say, but for time's sake, I just want to point two things out to you here. It's actually one thing that has two parts. Noah was a man of the altar and the tent. You see, he built an altar. We see him doing this. He builds altars. Altars speak of sacrifice. They speak of death to self. You put your life on the altar. Or you put animals on the altar. You are sacrificing. And the altar speaks of a great principle. That for God to have His house, there must be an altar. There must be sacrifice. The altar says, I am not living for my interests. I am not living for my joy, my happiness. I am not living as a consumer for me. I am putting my life on the altar. I am on this earth for God's interest, for God's purpose, for God to have a house. That's what the altar means. But then, he also lived in a tent. He was mobile. He lived in tents. And the tent speaks of this. The tent says, I am not attached 
to this fallen earth. I will go wherever God wants me to go. And if the Lord says, go here or go there, I will go. And if He wishes to build His house in another place where I don't live, I will pick up my tent because I'm not attached to this planet. And I will go where He wants me to go for His house. The altar in the tent. And you will see it again and again. Noah is a man of the altar in the tent. Now we come to Abraham. And by the way, I just have to add this. In Genesis 9... God reissues the Adamic commission to Noah. A thing that he told Adam to do in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. What did he say? Multiply, fill the earth, and I will bless you. He says the same thing to Noah. And God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Well, now we come to Abraham. And Abraham is a... We would call him a pagan. He lives in Ur of the Chaldees. He worships idols. He worships false gods. And God appears to him. And he reissues the Adamic commission to Abraham. He does it by framing it as a promise. He says, I will bless you. That's what he said to Adam. And you will be fruitful and multiply. And you will bless the earth. And Abraham is also a man of the altar in the tent. He builds an altar to God. When God appears to him and says this to him, he builds an altar. And he lives in a tent. And Hebrews 11 verse 3 tells us this one thing. That basically, against the context and the backdrop of the story, God says, leave her. Leave your family. Leave your father and mother. Leave the traditions of your father. And go to a land... But I have established where I will put my name and where I will build my house. And Hebrews 11 says it. Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. What's he doing? He's looking for the house of God. God has called him to be part of this building work. And he brings him to a land, out of the wilderness, into a land that's called Canaan. And it is an abundant land. It is a delightful land. What does Eden mean? Abundance. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. And brothers and sisters, listen to me. The Hebrews and the rabbis said again and again in their writings that Canaan was the new Eden. It was the garden reappearing because it was abundant. And God was going to live there. He was going to dwell there. And so Abraham actually did make it to this fertile land called Canaan. He has a son named Isaac. Isaac is also a man of the altar and the tent. You could read his story. And then we come to Jacob. And this is profound. This is all an ish moment for me. A wow moment. God issues the Adamic commission to Jacob now. Be fruitful and multiply, I will bless you. And in Genesis 28, we find Jacob being homeless. He's without a home. He's wandering. He's actually wandering in a wilderness. And he comes to this place. He doesn't know where he is. And he, he's tired. He puts, his, he puts his head on a stone. He, he, he gets a, the softest stone he can find. <laughs> Now, why he didn't put it on the ground, I don't know. But he says, well, I'm going to make a stone for a pillow. He puts his head on this stone, and he falls asleep. And he has a dream. And it's some dream. In the dream, he sees, it's not a ladder, folks. It's a stairway. He sees a stairway moving from earth to heaven. It goes from earth to heaven. It is a stairway, Led Zeppelin fans, stairway to heaven. It's the real stairway to heaven. And he sees angelic beings. They may have been cherub. We don't know. But they're angels. And they're moving up and down the stairway from the eternal invisible realm to the earth. What's happening? There's commerce between heaven and earth. There is, in this place, it is an overlap. It's a portal. 
It's an intersection. It's a joining of God's space and man's space. The angelic beings are going up and down. There's an exchange between the heavenly and the earthly. And the Lord from the very top of the stairway speaks and He gives the Adamic commission to Jacob and puts it in the form of a promise. I will bless you. You will fill the earth. He wakes up. And what does he say? For $10,000, what does he say? He says, Ish, yes. This is the house of God. God lives here. And he calls it Bethel, the house of God. And he takes the stone and he pulls out of his pouch cruise of oil. And he pours the oil on the stone as a memorial. Oil. All throughout Scripture speaks of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life. And that stone is something dead. But when the oil, which speaks of the Spirit of life, is poured on a dead stone, it becomes a living stone. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever read that in the New Testament? Living stones. The house of God in Bethel. The connection between heaven and earth. God having dwelling place. And here we have the first building block of the house of God. It is a living stone. Oil poured upon a rock. That's important, as you will see later on. Jacob has 12 sons. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Those sons are called the 12 tribes of Israel, or the children of Israel. Jacob is also a man of the altar and tent. And Israel is to live in Canaan, the new Eden. And what happens? The children of Israel find themselves in Egypt. And they're in bondage there for 400 years. And God brings them out of Egypt. And there's a whole reason for that. And I don't have time to get into it. But if you read a book entitled From Eternity to Here, you'll find out why they went into Egypt and what that all means. But Egypt is a counterfeit city. It's one of the cities that the enemy has built. God brings them out. Brings them into the wilderness. Because they have to get through the wilderness to get to Canaan, the new Eden. And while they're in the wilderness, the Lord God gives Israel the Adamic commission. And you, Israel, shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. Kings bearing my rule and priests bearing my image and communing with me. You will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And after they are delivered from Egypt and they get out of there they sing a song and listen to the words of the song now listen to the words of the song this is in Exodus 15 you will bring them meaning God's people you will bring them in in the land of Eden and plant them plant them and God planted a garden in Eden on the mountain of your inheritance on the mountain The place, O Lord, where you made for your dwelling a sanctuary your hands have established, not the hands of man. Your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Notice the words, plant them, that's Eden language, and your sanctuary and your dwelling, that's temple language. Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. And listen to this, this is a mind blower. Rabbinic literature, Hebrew literature, over and over again calls Israel, the nation of Israel, the new Adam. And Canaan is the new Eden. Do you see? God is telling the story again. He's repeating the story from a different vantage point. Israel was called to do what Adam failed to do in the garden. And God wants a house. He wants a dwelling. Israel was to possess the gates of her enemies. That corresponds to Adam subduing the earth. And they were to be a light to all nations. That corresponds to Adam bearing God's image. Well, Israel forfeited the priesthood. 
And they sinned against the Lord and there was a whole event that happened at the golden calf and Moses said, who's on the Lord's side? And only one tribe responded and it was the tribe of Levi. And that's why the priesthood was taken from all of Israel and given to that one tribe. Because they were faithful at that point. Now, watch this. God takes Moses to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and the heavens rip open and the Lord shows Moses a larger vision of his intention to have a dwelling place. He reveals to Moses a pattern for the dwelling of God and it's called the tabernacle. You ever heard of the tabernacle of Moses? Do you know what the tabernacle is? It is an enlarged tent and altar. The first thing you meet when you come to the tabernacle, God thought this up and He gave it to Moses in a vision and they built it in the wilderness. The first thing you come to when you enter the east gate and the gates on the east is the altar. But it's really big. And then you enter into a tent. And the tent is bigger. So God started with a little altar and a tent with Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now it gets a little bit bigger. And guess what? God dwells there. And He sits in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies where there's two cherubim looking at one another. Now, we can spend the next three months on the tabernacle and all of its furniture and still not exhaust it. And we're not going to do that because we don't have three months. But let me just give you a few glimpses. The tabernacle is made of gold and silver. Silver has replaced pearl. Why? Because silver always speaks of redemption in Scripture. All the time it has to do with redeeming. Redeeming by silver. All throughout the Old Testament. Well, you don't need redemption when there's no fall, right? But there's a fall now after Genesis 2. You get into Genesis 3, so now there's silver. It's gold and silver, and then there are onyx stones. Onyx stones, the actual stones that were in the garden, all over the high priest's garments. At the bottom of the high priest's robe, he's the priest that serves the tabernacle, they're pomegranates. That corresponds and harkens back to the garden. It's life. Pomegranates. Inside the tabernacle, there's something called the golden lampstand. Has anybody ever seen pictures of it? Golden lampstand? Guess what? It looks like a tree. And on, on the golden lampstand, there are almond blossoms and flower bulbs on it. But who ever heard of a, a lampstand with almond and flowers? Brothers and sisters, it's a picture of the tree of life. That's what that lampstand was. And the Jews, if you look at their writings, the Hebrews, they called it the image of the tree of life. It represented the tree of life. And you also have something called the laver, which held water. And that corresponds to the flowing river. The entrance is on the east. It faces east, but it's in the wilderness. Now here's a message. The house of God is getting a little bigger. Altar and tent, now tabernacle. Remember the garden was to spread and multiply? Very important. A cloud from heaven and fire appeared on the tabernacle when it was reared up. So when they reared it up, there was fire, there was a cloud, and the scripture says it was the glory of God on the tabernacle. Now, let's fast forward. Under Joshua, Israel enters in the land of Canaan. They get out of the wilderness, right? They entered into the land of Canaan that God promised them, and the land is where the temple is built. 400 years pass, and there's a man named David. He is a king, king of Israel. But he's also a priest. And I say he's a priest because he does things that only priests could do. He eats from the table of Shubrid. Only priests could do that. He wears the linen ephod. Only priests can do that. So he's a king and a priest. And he has a vision of God's house. He understands by revelation that God wants a dwelling place on the earth. And he says this, I will not go home. I will not let myself rest. I will not let my eyes sleep nor close my eyelids in slumber until I find a place to build a house for the Lord, a sanctuary for the mighty one of Israel. 
Now, I'm not going to get into what's known as the Tabernacle of David, but he built a little canvas tent, and he put the Ark of the Covenant in it, which was unprecedented. And God's presence was in that canvas tent. But he also understood that God wanted a house, a dwelling place. And so he said, I am here living in this palace of cedar. In this palace of cedar while the ark of God, God's presence remains as this little tent. He wanted something more glorious. He wanted something bigger. And so he wanted to build God a temple. He wanted a permanent dwelling place for the Lord. In Canaan, the new Eden. But he couldn't build it because why? Why couldn't he build it? What did the Lord say to him? Right. He shed blood with his, he was a man of war. See, God will only build his house in a time of rest. And when the Garden of Eden was planted, it was a time of rest. And so it's given to his son Solomon to build the temple. The temple of Solomon in a time of rest. And Solomon was not a man of war. The temple of God is built in the land of Canaan, which is the new Eden. And God's building gets bigger again. It moves from an altar and a tent to a tabernacle. And now there's this huge building called the temple. And it's made of gold, silver, and precious stones. And the onyx stone are there. And embroidered on the curtains that enclose the holy place, there is the starry heavens, which speak of the heavens, and the cherubim. And the cherubim has the face of a lion, an eagle, an ox, and a man. It speaks of the earthly creation. So on that curtain you have the heavenlies, the starry heavens, and all of creation. Animals, birds, human beings. God is saying again, I want to bring together my space and man's space. The invisible and invisible. And I want it on earth. And he dwelt in this temple from time to time. Wood carved open flowers and palm trees are contained all throughout the building. Palm trees. Remember the garden was full of many trees. The temple has a very large molten sea in the front of it. It was a large basin. It held 16,000 gallons of water. Echoes of the Garden of Eden. That temple was known as the gateway between heaven and earth. And 200 years passes and something happens. There's a prophet named Isaiah. And while the temple of God is there in the land of Israel, Isaiah says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Isaiah 66. Now wait a minute. God, you have your resting place. You have your house. It's the temple of Solomon. It's large. It's huge. It's glorious. It's made of gold, silver, precious stones. There are echoes of the garden all throughout it. You also have the lampstand there. In fact, you have many lampstands. There wasn't just one. They had a bunch of them in the temple of Solomon. It was huge. But the Lord says, no, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? The Lord must be speaking of some other kind of house. And so I'm going to stop right here and hit pause. And I want to say two things. One is, you have not heard anything yet. Seriously, you have not heard anything yet. I'm going to pick up the story tonight. And you don't want to miss tonight. I mean, if you have to quit your job to be here tonight, I recommend it, okay? If you've got to sell your family to be here tonight, all right, okay, that's a joke, folks, it's a joke. I'm totally joking, all right? Tonight, you're going to see where this story goes, and it is mind-blowing. The second point I want to make is something for you to consider. God gets His house when there is a vision that he wants something for himself, a resting place, a dwelling place, the connecting of heaven and earth, a Bethel, a house of a living God. See, he's not interested in taking you to heaven. This is what we've been taught as Christians. Well, we live this life, and then we die and we go to heaven. No, he wants to bring heaven to earth. He wants a place 
where He who lives in the heavens can live and express Himself and bear His authority and express His image through a corporate, collective people. And that people will be His resting place and He can find His home there. You know, what is a home? It's a place where you can relax. Right? You kick off your shoes. You can be yourself. You know, the best... The best way to get to know a person is in their home. Uh, Brother Dries, I'm getting to know this brother very well because I'm spending a lot of time in his home. The very way that it's decorated tells me a lot about him and his wife. Their personality is in it. Same thing with God's house. And you see, here's the thing about God. He doesn't just want to visit somewhere. He wants to dwell Now why do I say that? Because in so many places in the Christian world, Lord, visit us this morning. God, give us a visitation. Pass through this week. You know, you can lodge in our place and then go ahead and go on and let us do our thing. Visit. No. He wants a place to dwell. And He will only dwell where there is an altar and a tent. Where He makes the decisions where our lives are on the altar and we're saying it's not about us it's not our needs it's not what we want it's something for you we have died to what we want it's for you you want a house where you can be yourself where you can find rest where you can express yourself and so I put my life on the altar and then I'm a person of the tent maybe you don't want to build your house right now where I live maybe you want me to to move somewhere. Maybe you want me to just live as though I don't belong to this planet. I belong to another place, but you want that place to come here. So I'm not going to attach myself to anything. And you'll see why this is important when you find out what happened to Israel. I'll just give you a little clue. What happened in the Garden of Eden ended up happening in Canaan. What happened in the Garden of Eden? They were thrust out. The next scene in the story is God's people are thrust out of the new Eden.